Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. George Will has been an erudite an incisive commentator uh, for conservatism uh, at the National Review, Newsweek, The Washington Post. He won the Pulitzer Prize for commentary in 1977. And what I appreciate about him is that he is consistent in his principles, even when it means taking on Republican presidents from Nixon to Trump, who he believes are perverting conservative principles. I sat down with George Will uh, recently in Washington to talk about his life and career and the state of American politics and conservatism today. George Will, it's, it's, it's great to see you. Uh, lots to talk about in these turbulent times. Unfortunately, yes. yes. But before we get to uh, all of that, I want to talk about you uh, and your life. You know, the, I think the, one of the phrases that always comes up when people uh, uh, describe you um, is uh, is professorial. <laughs> and yeah. um, I, I, I learned by reading that um, you come by that naturally. Well, I'm the son of a uh, college professor, <clears throat> Frederick L. Will, professor of philosophy at the University of Illinois for 37 years. Uh, I uh, went to Princeton and got a Ph.D. intending to teach and briefly did at Michigan State University and then the University of Toronto. Actually, when I left Oxford, I, I applied to Harvard Law School and Princeton in philosophy, and I chose Princeton because it was midway between two National League cities. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about baseball, <laughs> exactly. too. Uh, so, yes, I mean, I, I come from an academic background and family. And, and where is your family from? Where are the Wills? The Wills were from western Pennsylvania. My uh, grandfather, my father's father, was a Lutheran minister uh, who went from one threadbare parish to another, winding up in Donora, Pennsylvania, ground zero for what's happened to the steel industry. Yeah. Uh, so they grew up, uh, they graduated into the Depression and uh, fortunately found a job teaching. And... Um, this fascination with baseball, because I know you grew up in Champaign, Illinois. Anyone who grows up in Illinois would have to ask the question, how does a, a kid who grew up in Champaign become a Cubs fan and not a Cardinals fan? Good question, because it's right at the dividing line between the people who look north and people who look south. And at an age too tender to make life-shaping decisions, I had to choose, and I chose the Cubs. All my friends became cardinal fans and grew up cheerful and liberal, <laughs> and I became a gloomy conservative. <laughs> yeah, well, that but but it probably steeled you for the task of being an apostate in a in a uh, 
in liberal times. That's right. Losing supposed to build character, and boy, do I have character. <laughs> was your was your uh, was your dad a baseball fan? No, no, my, my, he didn't care about it. Neither my mother until. It became clear to them that if they wanted to talk to me about anything for about 10 years, they had to learn. So my mother became a White Sox fan, so we could have something to argue about. And you, uh, <laughs> and you, um, but, but how, how did your interest? I, don't, I can't remember life without it. I think it's partly because baseball was literally in the air. It was a radio sport then. I grew up and I was born in 1941. There were two teams in Chicago, two in St. Louis. The St. Louis Browns were still there before they moved to Baltimore. So it was literally in the air, and, and I think it represented metropolitan America to me and the glamour of the big cities. And um, But ultimately, you got into the intricacies of the—you write about it— with the eye of someone who appreciates the nuances of of the game. Yeah, I, I've written 15 books, one of which has sold more, I think, than the other 14 combined, called Men at Work, The Craft of Baseball. Yeah. And I spent two happy years sitting in dugouts and clubhouses and hotel lobbies flying around with teams. And uh, I wrote the book because no one had written it for me. I wanted to know what was going on out there. So I got uh, Tony Larusa and Tony Gwynn and Cal Ripken and Oral Hershiser and found out. The um, you also did a, a stint I know as a kid uh, playing for the Mittendorf, Mittendorf Funeral Home Panthers little league team. Yes, I peaked a little early <laughs> at age twelve, and uh, our color was black. Needless to say, <laughs> but uh, you, you know it's a typical good Midwestern medium-sized town with a local car dealers and the funeral home sponsored teams. What uh, was, was uh, politics a subject in your, in your home? I think I read somewhere that your folks, like many academics, were more of the left than... I think my parents, again, remember they graduated into the Depression, and I yes. think they voted a number of times for Norman Thomas. The socialist socialist candidate. Party. Typical American socialist. He's a Princeton graduate. <laughs> we don't know how to do socialism in this country. but uh, And then uh, they were quite smitten with Adley Stevenson. Mm -hmm. And my father wound up being a Reagan voter. But what, what, how about your own uh, sort of evolution? Uh, were, were you deeply interested in that when you I, were young? I, I was very interested. And I was a reader of the Reporter magazine, now deceased, and the New Republic, and mm -hmm. the Nation, and all of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, very interested, and I was a kind of orthodox Kennedy Democrat. He worked with the Kennedy people in Connecticut when I was at Trinity College in 1960. I was on the right behind the candidate on the steps of the Hartford Times building. I think it was the Hartford Times building when he came through, I think, two days before the election. And then I, I went to England for two years, 62 to 64, where I saw A— the energies of a great people being suffocated by collectivism and socialism, as I saw it. And the Berlin Wall had just gone up. And I went to Berlin. Uh, and I came back in 1964 and voted for Goldwater. Just like, so that's a fairly, those are epiphanies. That's right. <laughs> uh, for you. What, um, uh, and you must have been judging on the outcome and where you were, um, uh, where you were working, uh, you must have been fairly alone in your commitment to Goldwater. <laughs> yeah. I went to Princeton's graduate school in the fall of 64. And in the faculty poll, 
Goldwater finished third. <laughs> Johnson Humphrey first, some peace and freedom type from California, and poor old Barry down there. Uh-huh. But, uh, what um, drew you to uh, to teaching? Because your dad was teaching. Yeah, and I, I was interested in political philosophy, and uh, it was just the idea of being paid to read political philosophy and write and think and argue about it. Sounded good. And what uh, what uh, what caused the transition? Well, there's uh, another Illinois person figures in this. Uh, I was teaching at the University of Toronto in 1969 when Everett Dirksen died, mm-hmm. and they shuffled the Republican Senate the leadership. Senator from Illinois, Republican leader right. in the Senate, and uh, the uh, the uh, the third ranking. Uh, in the hierarchy, the chairman of the Republican Policy Committee was elected was Gordon Allen of Colorado, a senator uh, of whom I had never heard. And he said, I want to hire a Republican academic to write for me. It's 1969. There were no Republican academics except me, and I was mm-hmm. in Canada. Uh, but through serendipity, he found out uh, where I was, and I came down. I thoroughly intended to go back. I worked for him for three years. He went. He ran in '72. Managed to lose while Nixon was carrying 49 states. Now that's not easy to do. <laughs> Who but, did he lose to? Uh, Floyd Haskell. Oh yeah. And uh, uh, but by then, I like no one ever leaves Washington except you had the good <laughs> sense to do it. I always said I was a Chicagoan on assignment. Yeah, exactly. When I was here. Well, so I called Bill Buckley. And I said, for whom I'd written a few things, and I said, you need a Washington editor of National Review. And Bill essentially said, you're right, I do, and you're it. Bill just collected young people he thought had some promise. And uh, I grew so up in New York uh, during his, uh, his brief political 1965? Career. Exactly. Oh, yeah. mayor, yeah. his best, the best of his 50 or so books was The Unmaking of a Mayor. Yes. A terrific book. Yeah. Um, the when you left Toronto and left teaching to do this, what was your thinking about? Did you did you think it was like a field trip? To yeah, see, I assumed see I was, how the natives uh, did the work. I was going to go back, and Toronto said you can come back. But when I got down here, I got the bug, and uh, uh, and I thought, and I think I was right that you can do essentially what you're doing in political philosophy with a with a column if you do it right. You can tell people there are large principles embedded in quotidian disputes. You um, you got a call when you uh, back in '73 from the White House, uh, which which was about to enter a, an epic constitutional <laughs> yeah. crisis. I became a columnist in January '73, just at the moment when Judge Sirico was imposing the draconian sentences on James McCord and the rest of the Watergate group. And uh, I, I rather quickly, now that I'm Washington editor of National Review. And a National Review at that time and still, but even more so then, was supported by wealthy conservative donors, a lot of whom didn't really like Nixon until it became clear he was a crook. Then they rallied around him. And so Bill has this new Washington editor who decided really early on that Nixon was a crook and was probably going to have to go. So I'm writing this stuff, and Bill was terrific. He never once said, tone it down, nothing. Uh, although it was, they used to do an analysis at National Review. They do a memo every few weeks of, of the mail that came in. <laughs> and the category 
subscription cancellations and George Will was the same thing. <laughs> and, uh, and I think about March of that year, just about the time Nixon had to fire Ald uh, Haldeman and Ehrlichman, I got a call from Al Haig. He said, the boss really likes what you're writing and would like to invite you to come on board the White House. And I said, that's extremely flattering. But he was chief of staff at the chief time. Chief of staff at the time. I said, it's very flattering. Yeah. But uh, perhaps you ought to read my next column first. And I never <laughs> heard from him again. Yeah, the column, uh, you know, I read, uh, I, read what, I read what you wrote about uh, Nixon. And there were echoes in it of columns that you've written now <laughs> 45 years uh -huh. later uh, about the president we have now and what the obligation of conservatives were uh, I'm, I'm right back where I started. In 1973, the Washington, Spiro Agnew, the vice president of Nixon, had been running around the country complaining about the bias in the media. And that at that point, his big grievance was there weren't enough conservative columnists on the nation's op-ed pages. So the Post said, ha, we will market George Will as someone who will support Nixon. So just as I'm starting this career and just as the Post is going to do that, I messed it all up by not supporting Nixon. And here I am 40-some years later. A uh, conservative without a home. Yes, a, a conservatism is a persuasion without a party, and so am I. The, um, one of the lines you wrote here then seems relevant now, reflective. Conservatives know they must act with special severity against miscreants whose political activities represent a perversion of conservatism in the name of, but contrary to, the essential conservative values. Awful. I can just keep doing it every 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Talk to me about the arc of conservatism. You went to work for Newsweek as well. Yeah. So you've been charting this throughout, and you've been a significant sort of intellectual driver of these discussions, but talk about the arc of uh, conservative, obviously uh, conservatism. Nixon wasn't really a conservative. He was a vehicle in, yeah. in, in a certain way, the same way Trump, I don't know who hijacked who, but um, they set aside Nixon's obvious deficiencies as yeah. a vehicle, but that Nick, was- a, Nixon really wasn't interested in domestic policy. Uh, I think he said, and Kennedy had an exchange once where I think Kennedy said to him, who gives a expletive what the minimum wage is? They, they had other things on their mind. I cast my first presidential vote for Barry Goldwater, and I've often said that uh, he didn't lose. It just took 16 years to count the votes. <laughs> the Republican Party had been divided first in 1912. When uh, Teddy Roosevelt challenged his friend and good and and uh, the incumbent president then William Howard Taft, uh, it was divided again in the 1940s. The Daft Dewey Republicans against the Taft Republicans. In the 1960s, the Goldwaterites against the Rockefeller types. Goldwater's constructive loss captured the Republican Party and began to make it an ideological party. Uh, when I came to Washington uh, six years later, the Senate contained Republican senators, Case, uh, Case of New Jersey, Percy of Illinois, Javits, uh, Javits of New York, Keating of New York, yeah. Brooke of Massachusetts, an enormous spectrum. 
And on the Democratic side, the Senate was run by McClellan of Arkansas, Stennis of Mississippi, Eastland of Mississippi, uh, Richard Russell from Winder, Georgia, conservative Southern yeah. Democrats. So liberal Republicans from the Northeast, yeah. conservatives from right. the South. Today they're inconceivable they're, today. Today there are no more liberal Republicans. There are no more conservative Democrats. The the political science Museum of Natural History. Yeah, the political scientists fifty years ago said, "Wouldn't it be great if we could just sort our parties out ideologically the way the Europeans have?" Well, we've done it, and is everybody happy? I don't think so. So let me ask you about um, one element of this because um, uh, one of the that was a, such a momentous time, 64, 65, uh, in terms of the evolution of our politics, and a lot of it around uh, the issue of civil rights. Um, you mentioned Everett Dirksen. He provided the votes to pass the civil rights bill. Um, Goldwater opposed it. And very quickly, the Republican Party started realigning—the the South started realigning behind— Actually, uh, David, they started earlier. They started in 56 when Eisenhower ran, much stronger than people thought. And he carried some upper south states. So it, the, the movement was there eight years before Goldwater. But, uh, but not around this issue of civil rights. I mean, in the 60s, yeah. that became a rallying point. Nixon yeah. sort of weaponized it yeah. with his southern uh, strategy. Um, talk, talk about that how conservatism aligns with that position. And, and do, I mean, I, I should know this, uh, but um, talk to me about your feelings about those civil rights acts in, this, in the 60s and uh, whether they were the, voting, they were the, right, right, the, the voting rights act. Yeah, the, and the public accommodation section yes. of the 64 Act, or the, yes. probably the, certainly the Voting Rights Act, the noblest act by Congress, certainly in my lifetime, and arguably ever. Goldwater's vote against it was a mistake. Uh, but no one who knew Barry thought it was because of racial feelings. Yeah. He had constitutional objections about people's property and all the rest. I'm sure that's right. And, I mean, he was led the integration of the Arizona National Guard. The Goldwater Department Store was a leader in yeah. know, civil rights in Phoenix and all the rest. Yeah, I'm not, I don't mean to impugn yeah. him, but I'm just, you know, that, that was such a defining era in terms yeah. of the realignment of our politics. You know, I don't think Nixon, by the way, was quite as noble in his, um, in his opposition. No. Uh, you have to go back to, I mean, this, you're quite right to focus on the mid-60s, something, but it began in 1938 in the election after Roosevelt had tried to pack the Supreme Court. And there was such a blowback among Democrats against the president that Roosevelt lost his liberal legislating majority yeah. in Congress between 1938 and— I, 19- I, have to, I have to tell you that yeah. um, when we lost 63 seats in 2010, you may have assisted us in that project, by the way. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I always noted that Roosevelt lost 78 mm. in 1938, and I said, so we actually did better than Roosevelt. Yeah, very so, good. Anyway. Well, there was no liberal legislative majority in Congress between 38 and 64. Barry Goldwater produced the next liberal legislative majority. The anti-Goldwater landslide was so severe that it swept in this enormous number that enabled Lyndon Johnson to do whatever he wanted to do, and he wanted to do a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, he knew exactly what he wanted to do to complete the, the uh, 
the New Deal project. Lyndon Johnson's the only president we've had who spent almost his entire adult life in Washington. And he knew how to do this. But he overreached. And he, by 1966, there was a blowback. And the Great Society was in bad odor. People saying in government, people began to raise serious questions about the actual competence and proper scope of government. And it was just made for Nixon to come along. And Republicans won, what, four of the next five and five of the next seven presidential elections. People forget George Wallace carried four exactly. states in uh, yeah. 1968. I see echoes of his rhetoric in the rhetoric of oh, absolutely. The, the, the president now. Um, you know, one of the things that I've been pondering lately is this tension. Um, I mean, I... I have to tell you, my own personal awareness um, has come late in life. I should have thought more about it, about the meaning of four and a half million human beings being taken from Africa, brought here, and you know, sold into servitude and so on. It's a horrible uh, legacy, and it's had a lot of uh, negative ramifications throughout our history, and, and, and there are a lot of, you know, there are African-Americans who, uh, many who feel uh, that, I think properly, that they've been, you know, victimized by this history and discriminations that followed. At the same time, you have um, middle-class white people who've been caught in the switches of a changing economy uh, who feel like, you know, minority, poor minorities are getting handouts Wealthy people, well, corporations are getting bailouts, and they're neglected and forgotten. And it is a really caustic mix. Um, and I think it's been 50 years, sort of in the development and in the making. And no one has exploited it since Wallace and Nixon, perhaps, uh, as uh, as shamelessly and effectively as as Donald Trump. I agree with that, but I would not let that cloud the, the real picture, which is America is so much better today than it was 50 years ago mm -hmm. than it does when we had these debates about public accommodations yes. and the Pickrick restaurant in Georgia and the Freedom Rides and all that. Turn on, on a Saturday, an SEC football game, Mississippi against Alabama. The head referee is apt to be an African-American, bossing everyone around in the most sacred thing that the South knows, which is college football. Unthinkable. I mean, it was, wasn't until, what, about 1966 that Bear Bryant got an African-American player in Alabama? Now the, now the, just look at the change in the country. It's phenomenally good. Yeah. I mean— and well, we we elected an African American exactly uh, president. I mean, there are, there are all kinds of signs of progress. There are also lingering uh, uh, legacies. But on the Voting Rights Act, uh, and I want to continue with your own uh, journey. But on the Voting Rights Act, um, the Supreme Court in the Shelby case um, removed these preclearance uh, uh, provisions from the. Uh, from the law, I just uh, sat down yesterday with Eric Holder, did a uh, one of my CNN uh, TV shows uh, with him, and he, um, you know, he lists a long litany of things that have happened since. Um, and I wonder if you 
you called the law the no, one of the noblest things. I wonder uh, how you interpret that court decision and some of the things that have happened relative to the closing of polling places. And yeah, I don't object to that uh, that court decision because it was they were still using by now about fifty year old data. Whereas the South has been transformed in the last 50 years. Look at South Carolina, a state where I have a, have a vacation home. Largest BMW plant in the world is in South Carolina. Uh, Volvo plants and three or four tire I mean, It's an industrial state now with enormous prosperity. Um, the, no state, I think, has changed more and more for the better than South Carolina, but it's not untypical of the South. So it seems to me it, using ancient data to continue a stigma against uh, the southern states is just a mistake. Now, that does not mean that there isn't uh, gerrymandering, voter suppression, and all the rest. I, I, I think that, that goes on. I think it goes on not just in the South. Uh, so I, I, I think the law, as I say, was probably the best law Congress ever passed, the Voting Rights Act. I mean, it just changed the country like that, changed Trump Thurmond like that. All of a sudden, he says, whoop, I got new voters. Uh, but I'm not as alarmed by the ending of the preclearance provisions as some people are. Yeah, I think the, the argument w uh, is that uh, a lot of initiatives were taken in the wake of that court decision that would not have been taken. Uh, and, uh, and it's concerning. You but, didn't but your man did better down south than, um, say, Kerry did. Yeah. Um, no, he did, and, um, uh, and certainly better than, than Hillary Clinton did. But that doesn't mean—I mean, we also, ten, we also had to contend with, uh, as you know— uh, and, and of course, the the uh, Shelby decision uh, took place after his reelection. Yeah. But you know, you've seen this. Uh, you know, there was a statistic recently about the fact that African Americans uh, have uh, generally have to wait twice as long to vote. Mm. You know, there there are things that are insidious, but they also still can be litigated. It just there's you know so, and I'm and I'm sure that they will be. In 1980. Uh, you talked about the election of Barry Goldwater taking 16 years to have the votes counted. But you supported Howard Baker. Uh, Early on, yeah. Yeah. What, what, why not Reagan, who claimed to be the legatee of, uh, uh, of, of Goldwater and actually came to the fore as a political figure with this electric speech that he gave? A uh, Time for Choosing, 1964, yeah. yeah. Uh, I knew Baker, and I, I was—I'd come here through the Senate and admired him as a senator. I was a little bit worried about Ronald Reagan's age, uh, which is kind of interesting now. Yes, he was nowadays. a kid, actually. Yeah, by exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but uh, then I got to know uh, Ronald Reagan and uh, became ardent supporter. Got in a world of trouble for yes, help, for I help, for helping him prepare for his one debate he had with Jimmy Carter, and then. After he won, I got a call about a week after the victory from Bill Casey, who'd been his campaign manager and yes. was to be CIA director. Yes. And he said, the governor's coming back for his first trip to Washington after the election. Would you give a party for him? So I did. 
And yeah. uh, so we, we, we became good friends. He came to my house, I think, six times for dinner as president. I should know you also hosted us and yes. President Obama in your home when he came yeah, to Washington. It's, so. it's, I, I, I called him before he was nominated, and I said, you're going to get nominated, and you're going to win. And it would be nice to try and revive certain civilities here uh, that used to be in Washington where people would fight during the day and then have dinner together in the evening. And he said he'd do it. So yeah. he did, and it it, uh, it didn't exactly defuse Washington, No, <laughs> but uh, it was a nice attempt. Do you think those civilities are recoverable? I do. Uh, not in a hurry, but one of the things I have learned in, in my comprehensive recoil against the modern presidency <laughs> is the enormous tone-setting power of a president. We see it now in the destructiveness of the, the current president. And it's going to take a long time to undo this damage. You can't unring a bell. You can't unsay the things he has made common and normal in our discourse. But the fact that he has been so destructive so quickly does, I think, have a good side, which means maybe you can go the other way just as quickly. If someone would come in and say, deep breath, America, calm down. As Lincoln said at the end of his first inaugural, we are not enemies, we must not be enemies. Uh, I think things could be changed in a hurry. There's you a problem here. Yeah. And that is Congress today is a Tuesday through Thursday operation. Mm -hmm. uh, the, partly because of that and partly because of the Washington real estate market, people don't bring their families. There's not as much socializing across the aisle. It all feeds together into this. Uh, I think it would be a very good idea if they changed the schedule of Congress so that people were here longer and uh, did more work. Of course, if you're going to run the government forever on continuing resolutions, what's the point? Of course, then what's the point of having a Congress for that matter? I was talking with Senator Bennett of Colorado, one of your yeah. presidential candidates. Yeah. He told me the other day, he said 40% yeah. of his time in the Senate, the government's been under a continuing resolution. Yeah. He's a he's a really good guy, and um, he's the best among those who are out there. I know now. you you wrote a very glowing column. He's about the him. one they ought to nominate. Yeah, I hate to say that because anyway. Yeah, your did. endorsement hasn't vaulted him to I, the, the the top of the list. A I don't strange number of Democrats are reluctant to take my lead, but there you <laughs> are. Um, the other element of uh, I want to go back to um, to Reagan and, and actually say a word about Howard Baker, but um, the um, the other element um, that we didn't discuss, in addition to the lack of comedy and and, and um, genuine relationships between members of Congress, is um, social media and the modern media mm. environment, including you know you and I both. I've worked on cable television and, um, but you know, th we used to have a national conversation. We would disagree on things, but we generally were arguing about the same set of yeah. facts. We don't live in that environment anymore. And there is a kind of pervasive fear of the base in both parties, I think, but right now it's very evident in the Republican party and it's propagated by, uh, certainly amplified yeah. by, um, the modern media environment. That's a, that's a tough one to... It is. I said earlier in our conversation, I went over the uh, history of divisions within the Republican Party. The Republican Party today is more united 
than it has been since the McKinley era. And that's too bad because it's united around all the wrong things and around personality, which is not good politics. Um, at the 500-day mark of Reagan's presidency, he had the support of 77% of Republicans. 500-day mark of the Trump presidency had the support of 87% of Republicans, and today it's probably 90-some, in part because a number of Republicans, like me, yes. are no longer in the tent. Yeah. But uh, uh, this is not healthy. That That is true. I think, uh, you know, when you're, when you're called and asked uh, what party you belong to, or if people are going off of a list in which party registration is shown. I think there are, there is more than, there are more than a few Republicans who no longer identify themselves yeah. as Republicans. So he's got a purer base of Republicans uh, to draw on. But when you say the party is united, um, is it united by principle or is it united by fear uh, of a tweet? Hostility, too. I mean, we, they, people will say they don't like Democrats, and they're not quite sure why, but they know they don't. And Democrats will say, we don't like Republicans, we're not quite sure why, but we don't. And there are lots of stereotypes and cartoonish presentations of both sides. But with regard to, to Mr. Trump, first of all, it is fear. That is, one tweet can ruin you. Yeah. Talk to ex-Senator Corker, ex-Senator Flake, ex-Congressman Sanford. Yes. Uh, if you get crosswise with this guy, as he's producing a homogenized Republican Party, which, of course, he had no interest in for most of his adult life. Well, and won't probably after. I think he's no, going to leave the car by the side of the road when he's done with it. <laughs> yes. You know, uh, banged up and dented. and uh, But, um, uh, no, I, I think because, you know, the, uh, the reason I want to raise Howard Baker mm. was my, you know, and most Americans who of, 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 of that vintage— uh, remember more than anything else uh, his performance on the Watergate committee and the integrity with which he pursued his responsibilities, even though it meant uh, challenging a president uh, of his own party. Uh, and, um, you know, one of the questions that comes up a lot is where are the Howard Bakers? Where are the people who are willing to say what is obviously wrong? Um, today. I mean, you know, you, I saw uh, Kev McCarthy uh, defend uh, this uh, practice of housing, you know, Air Force personnel at, uh, at the Trump uh, Golf Club in Turnberry. And, you know, you heard people deafening silence when the president, uh, when, when, when Noah, you know, uh, tried to rein in the meteorologist from you know, acknowledging that Alabama was not, in fact, threatened by a storm, and no one will stand up and say anything. They're terrified. I do not know why they want to be senators. They fight like tigers, campaign, raise money, lose sleep, lose weight to become senators. Why? They don't do anything. They don't vote on anything. As I said a moment ago, the, the government was on automatic pilot now under continuing resolutions. What are they here for? Yeah. The trouble is, I mean, it's, it's an old saying that some people are in politics because they want to do something and others going to be something. We now have an almost entirely a Republican Party composed of people who want to be something. There are honorable exceptions. Senator Portman, Senator Toomey, serious people who are serious, among other things, about the damage Congress has done in delegating to presidents of both parties discretion that can be and now is being abused. 
I mean, Mr. Trump says imported steel from Canada is a national security threat. Well, he's well, got I'm glad a, somebody's finally stood up to those Canadians. Yeah, you know? exactly. Uh, <laughs> fellow NATO members. I mean, it's just, it's, it, it, satire you, is dead. I asked about the restoration of, of, of sort of a, a sense of uh, fellowship in this town. Um, what, what do you think the damage to our institutions are uh, of, of this era? You know, I, um, everybody knows my, uh, what my political philosophy is, my lineage. Um, but I, you know, I have many Republican friends and uh, I, you know, I think of Republican presidents with whom I disagreed, but I never doubted that they did what they thought was best for the country. And I always tell a story about President Bush H.W. Bush, not H, uh, George W. Bush, in our transition, I mean, we we uh, pounded relentlessly on the policies of the Bush administration. And in the transition, he could not have been more gracious to us, not because he loved what we said, but because he thought it was his it was his responsibility as the trustee of our democracy to hand over the institution yeah. uh, and give us um, the best uh, help he could get. Well, you and I are talking in my office in Georgetown. Yeah. Behind you on a desk is a picture of my best friend, Senator Pat Moynihan of New York. Mm -hmm. You walked into this little townhouse in Georgetown, past a bust of Henry Jackson, Scoop Jackson, Democrat from Washington, a great Cold War Democrat who was one of my mentors when I came to work on the Senate staff. It was that way in the past. It can be that way again. It's not going to be easy. What about the institutions themselves? If the, if people are relentlessly told that um, the Justice Department is corrupt, the FBI is corrupt, the intelligence agency is 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 corrupt, agencies are cor corrupt, um, the the courts are not on the level. Um, we we've not really heard that from a president before. No, we've not heard. We've not heard the. The uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve Board being called the enemy of the people. Yeah. Uh, Especially odd, given that the chairman of the Reserve, Federal Reserve was appointed by the president. I, I, I get you. Look, the, quite clearly, institutions have hurt themselves. Congress did not have to marginalize itself by opting out of all the difficult decisions and giving too much discretion to presidents of both parties. And Congresses under both parties have done this. Uh, some of our institutions, including the FBI, have not been led by optimum leaders. But that happens in politics. That happens in a democracy. Things go badly. They're messy. Uh, but you're right. You can't constantly say that this is normal. This is to be expected. That's what's different, and that's what's most dangerous. And and what are there long term? My concern is that norms, once they're broken, are hard to restore. Yeah. Um, yeah. Norms are unwritten, and which means they're written on the hearts of people. They're written in the manners that people have, who are just brought up to be just as as your grandmother taught you to be well behaved. Uh, people are taught to be well-behaved as citizens. Well, no one's teaching that anymore. In fact, the president is teaching the opposite. He's saying, this is how you talk to one another in America. The, um, uh, let's return to Reagan 
and talk to me about him. You obviously knew him well. Um, you said you, you, you got to know him um, really when he came uh, to this town and when you, you famously worked with him on that uh, debate yeah. and so on. What was, the thing that, uh, what was the thing that surprised you most about him? Uh, how reflective he was. People didn't really understand this until Martin Anderson and his wife produced the Reagan letters. Yeah. And people said, wow, this is an interesting guy. He'd written so many of his own radio scripts when he was uh, between governor and presidential candidate. He'd thought these things through. I remember once talking to Nancy Reagan when uh, they'd just left Washington, gone back to California, and I got an advanced copy of the bound galleys of David McCullough's biography of Truman. And I said to Nancy Reagan that I just got this. She says, oh, yeah, Ronnie's reading it already. He was, a, he was an avid reader. Uh, not his image. Not his image at all. And he didn't care about his image. He said that people worry about that. He, uh, he used his preternatural friendliness, affability, and limitless store of stories and jokes to keep people at a distance. He had one friend, and he married her. Mm-hmm. Everyone else, I'm not saying he was an unfriendly, fabulously friendly, but friends, people he let in close to him, one of them it was Nancy. Why do you think that was? I don't know. People have been speculating about this syndrome from someone who had an alcoholic father. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that was Ronald Reagan. He, um, Mike Deaver, who you knew, mm-hmm. uh, worked for Reagan for years, um, uh, told a great story about arriving in New York once, and they were walking out of a hotel. This was long before he was president. Uh, he may, maybe be, before, I guess it must have been while he was governor, and some uh, person came up with a pen and paper and said, Mr. Holden, Mr. Holden, I, I'd love your autograph. So Reagan took the paper and he signs Bill Holden and yeah. he hands it back to him. And the guy says, Thank you so much. And he goes off, and Deaver said, well, Why'd you do that? And he said, Guy thinks he got Bill Holden's autograph. He's happy, so what does it matter? Which I thought was kind of an instructive uh, story. Talk to me about conservatism uh, as you see it and what the fundamental tenets are and what the – and I guess I'm sort of interested in in where you see the the role of government uh, relative to the role of markets. Yeah. I've just published – intimidatingly thick book called uh, The Conservative Sensibility. It's about 565 pages of all my thoughts on this, but I will distill it for you. This is for the, yeah, for the great unwashed. Uh, well, conservatives, I think American political argument is an argument between two Princetonians, James Madison of the class of 1771 and Woodrow Wilson of the class of 1879. Madison said... Natural rights are real because human nature is fixed. Natural rights are the rights essential to the flourishing of the human individual. And they are best protected by a government that can secure those rights. That's the most important word in the Declaration of Independence, conservatives think. All men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and governments are instituted to secure those rights. First come rights, then comes government that government 
in this definition is inherently limited by its protect is securing rights, and that a turbulent free society, a market society, restless entrepreneurial people is the best protector of freedom and the best producer of prosperity. Now, Woodrow Wilson comes along and says, not true. That was all very well once when there were only 4 million Americans living within 20 miles of Atlantic tidewater on the east fringe of this continent. Now, said Wilson, we need a strong central government to organize uh, this nation that's now united by steel rails and copper wires. And by the way, uh, there is no stable human nature. We are just creatures who acquire a particular kind of culture, whatever culture we're situated in. And therefore, government has the majestic task of fine-tuning the culture in order to fine-tune the consciousness of the people. An enormous— Except on race. Except, that wasn't one of his concerns. Except, oh, oh, yeah, tell me about it. A vaulting ambition for government. Uh, that's the basic difference today. Uh, conservatives believe that uh, the turmoil of an uncontrolled, dynamic market society is healthy and good and serves us well. Uh, someone once said that the story of the Bible reduced to one sentence is God created man and woman and promptly lost control of events. And conservatives say, good, we like that. Lack of control is what we want. We want turmoil. We, we want an unfocused future. We want the messiness of freedom. Whereas uh, our, our progressive friends, Elizabeth Warren particularly, Elizabeth has a plan for everything. I've got a plan for that. Well, you know the old axiom, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Because societies, complex societies, cannot be planned. That's what Hayek called the fatal conceit government can do what markets can do. Markets are only information-generating devices, and no government can marshal this kind of information or act on it or control it. That, but the, the, the presumption is that uh, markets are pure and that they can't be manipulated, uh, and uh, that, of course, turns out not to be the case. And are That's there not right, places where markets need to be regulated? Sure they do. I'm not Conservatives are not against antitrust laws, for example. They're not against uh, laws against fraud, uh, insider trading, and all the rest. What bothers me about people like Elizabeth Warren, she's got a firm grip on half a point. Her point is she says, look at this government. There's a reason why five of the ten richest counties on a per capita wealth basis are in the Washington area. Trillions of dollars slosh through this town. She says the government is the plaything of intense, organized, compact, confident, articulate, well-lawyered interest groups. She's right. right. Then she says, so what we need to do is make this government bigger and make it even more actively involved in the allocation of wealth and opportunity. She's got that exactly wrong. What you, know, you need to do is, is get the government more away from the allocation of wealth and opportunity. Let markets do it. Keep markets functioning well. They have to be policed. I got all that. But markets are better at this and less prone to corruption than governments are. Does it, but, but isn't there, a, you know, I, I think of a few other Republicans, um, uh, Abraham Lincoln, who uh, 
started land grant colleges so that mm -hmm. people had access to higher education, the National Science Foundation sure. to promote research that may not Abraham have Abraham Lincoln's the only president with a patent. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and the uh, the Transcontinental Railroad. Absolutely. These were big initiatives Absolutely. Uh, of government. I think of Roosevelt and Teddy Roosevelt and Taft, who uh, responded to um, some of the excesses of the sure. of the uh, of the Gilded Age. And Lincoln's you know, first, when he was a state legislator, what he was obsessed with were, were railroads and canals in Illinois. His hero, his beau ideal of a statesman, he called him when he died, was Henry Clay, whose American system was all about what we call infrastructure, and they called internal improvements, mm -hmm. but. The point is what Lincoln and Clay and others said was we, we build the Transcontinental Railroad and we build under Eisenhower, good Republican president, the highway interstate system. highway system, mm -hmm. in order to facilitate individual striving and upward mobility of individuals. It's the individualism of, of, uh, uh, of conservatism that I think is in jeopardy, partly because, and you will find this in my book and you will not leave here without a copy, uh -huh. where I... Uh, take exception to Elizabeth Warren said it first, and then Barack Obama said it campaigning in Roanoke, Virginia in 2012. If you build that, you didn't really build it because society sort of did it. And there's part of well, the Well, but isn't the, the point, argument. I mean, you know, it was, it was under Republican administrations that we uh, implemented universal secondary education yep. and the 40-hour work week. And, uh, uh, you know, there... I think Republicans and Democrats agree the GI Bill was a great step forward. So you can take advantage of what the markets have to offer, but you also may need some, uh, you know, Absolutely. opportunity to realize your full potential yeah. in those markets. You mentioned the uh, 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 the land grant colleges, the Morrill mm -hmm. Act, eighteen sixty two, Shiloh. Antietam, Fredericksburg, mm -hmm. one of the arguably the worst year in American history. Congress still passed not only the Morrill Act, but the Homestead Act, yeah. which was our first immigration bill mm -hmm. because we didn't have enough immigrants. They said, please come to America, go to work, work the land, we'll sell it to you cheap. That was, uh, think of that. Congress yeah. doing that. Listen, I also think one of the, I mean, when I talk about Lincoln, I talk about these things because it's so remarkable that he was already thinking about what the country needed after the yeah. war. And what a remarkable uh, person. I, I don't mean to, I, there's something I, I need to talk to you about before we go. And in between, I need to squeeze, I don't want to go from the sacred to the profane, but do you think, um, you know, this impeachment uh, investigation is moving forward? It's pretty hard to argue that there aren't grounds to at least consider that. Uh, do you think Congress should move forward? No, I think, and, and I think I don't want them to move forward because I want the man to leave. Uh, it seems to me that they're apt to make uh, the kind of mistake that Republicans made with Bill Clinton in 1998. We have an election right over the horizon. You want to get rid of Trump, have a – the cure for a bad election is a better election. Yeah. Now, I, intelligent people of goodwill can and do disagree about whether a high crime and misdemeanor fits that impeachment language from the Constitution, fits the ghastliness of this fella. I think impeachment 
can be a prophylactic act, not, a, not an act to punish someone for deeds done, but a prophylactic act to protect the country from future injury. And I think every day this man is president, he injures the country. I got that. But I think uh, impeachment— So you're making a political judgment that it would be a mistake? I am making a political judgment. Mm -hmm. A, there would be a huge mistake, a benefit to to Donald Trump. But beyond that, uh, I think the American people would say it's disproportionate somehow. Overturning an American presidential election is a big deal. Mm -hmm. And I think the Democrats are making a colossal mistake doing this. It feels like uh, the speaker— Pelosi oh, she's recognizes got, she that. She understands. Yeah. Speaker Pelosi is a superb professional politician. And just watching her is like watching Omar Vizquel play shortstop. <laughs> That's high praise right there. That's right. I, I agree with you. I mean, she's been extraordinary, particularly in this yeah. uh, in this period. I should ask you about the the. There is a there is a cost uh, to apostasy within. Uh, this Republican Party, um, you're really—you've been for years and years and years one of the one of the great commentators in our, on our politics. And you've gone from—you were at ABC for many years. Mm-hmm. You were at Fox News. Um, you ended up in a kind of confrontation with one of their big personalities <laughs> there, Bill O'Reilly, and you left. And um, I was wondering, A, what that was about. Well, they didn't want me back, and uh, they were right. I mean, they said, you don't belong here, and I don't, because they're uh, uh, an organ of the current administration, and that's just—I can't do that. But no hard feelings. I mean— What do you make of the role that they are playing now? Well, it's—Fox News studios are— on North Capitol Street. They're mm-hmm. right opposite the Capitol. So uh, Republicans can walk across the street and talk to their base anytime they want. It's an amazing thing. MSNBC is a little bit the same way. It is, although they haven't consolidated the Democratic no. base the way. I mean, right. I think 50% of Republicans, say they get all or most of their right. news from, from Fox News. Right. Uh, no, Fox is, is quite unique. Uh it makes Republicans a little bit lazy, I think, because they can short. It's a, it's a short path right into their to the mind of the party. But you wind up uh, in these intellectual silos that produce throughout the country confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. Everyone's getting just what they want to hear, and just what it makes them comfortable to hear, and it is not healthy. I can't go without—we we share, uh, in addition to a, a love of baseball and the Cubs, a passion for politics and, uh, and, and um, history. But um, we both have uh, uh, children who have uh, fought through challenges uh, in their lives. And I wanted to ask you about your son. Yeah, John is 47, a Down syndrome child. He was born in 1972. And the hospital geneticist, this is Georgetown Hospital, came in. He was a Jesuit priest. And he said, the first question you have to decide is, are you going to take him home? And I said, yeah, we kind of thought that's what parents did with their children. Took him home and raised him and got on with life. But it was perfectly normal in 1972 to institutionalize Down syndrome children. Uh, at that time, and one of the reasons why at that time, uh, the life expectancy of Down syndrome children was 20 years. 
John's 47. He works in the Washington Nationals Clubhouse. He gets mm-hmm. up in the morning and goes to a major league ballpark. He has a better job than I've got. <laughs> uh, so he's doing just fine. Uh, you've, written, uh, you've written and you've spoken about what you've learned uh, from him. And I, it really resonated with me because I remember my daughter uh, uh, lives in a, a community near, near us uh, uh, of, of people with um, intellectual disabilities. And uh, we, uh, my, my wife went up there to get her on uh, the day of 9-11. And, um, you know, there was, there was this community of sort of love and joy um, that stood so apart from mm-hmm. the ugliness uh, of the world. And you've written about the, 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 um, the sweet spirit of your, of your son, and it really resonated with me. I've never seen John angry in 47 years. I've seen him sad. I've seen him happy. I've seen him perplexed. Never seen him angry. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Yeah, I think that's. But I think that's something common yeah. that may, that is special and yeah. inspiring. And I also have to say, in 47 years, I can't remember a bad experience that he's had or that I've at least seen him have interacting with people in the community. Americans are pretty nice people. Yeah. Well, he's uh, he's he's also lucky to have the support. Uh, of a loving family. Yeah. Well, he's got the three siblings, and we're all having fun. Yeah. George Will, it is uh, an honor to be with you. Enjoy this. Uh, and uh, I hope, but I don't think it's going to be this year, that we will maybe celebrate another World Series somewhere uh, down the line. Well, if Javi Baez weren't injured, I'd... I'd Think you still hold out hope, huh? I still hold out hope anyway. Look, I'm, I'm a, you and I are veterans of, of <laughs> irrational hope. That's what it means to be a Cub fan. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.